If you have a Bible with you, we're back in Galatians this week. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. You can find the text in your order of worship, or you can use your phone or anything else you'd like for that matter. Um, So from Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, I say to you, hear the word of God. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do not listen to the law. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. But just as that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, I pray now that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that um, for those who have, and maybe, maybe they've come in here, and whether they're conscious or even, even unconsciously, uh, relying on works of the law, relying on performance to please you, I pray that you would undo that today. I pray that, that, that you would destroy that sort of system of thought and replace it with one of grace. I pray for myself that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things, amen and amen. Well, as I said, we're back in Galatians, and we've, up to this point, if you remember the whole theme of the book of Galatians, Paul basically planted this church, and he preached this message of grace by faith alone in Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That you, if you start adding things to the faith, you, you actually lose Jesus. And people had come along, um, Judaizers or antagonists or, or aggravators, whatever you want to call them, some people apparently had come along and started to teach the Galatian church, well, you know, Paul, Paul's right, you need to trust Jesus, but also, if you really want to be sure about your faith, you need to be circumcised. Or you need to obey certain days on the calendar, certain festivals, certain feasts. And so Paul's whole letter is addressing this question. And today he takes an interesting turn. Today is, is a lot of people say this is one of the hardest passages in the New Testament. So give me some grace. <laughs> but e- either way, I'm going to start with a question because it's the same question that was, was asked that the Judaizers were beginning to ask people in the Galatian church. And the, the question is this. What do you know about your ancestry, and how, how important is it? I mean, you don't have to answer right now, and I'm not looking for a vote, but maybe that's something you think about later. Like, what do you think about your own ancestry? Does it, does it define you? What, how, how much does it define you? Does it really matter? You know, I, it's interesting, a few years ago, when I turned 50, my mom sent me one of those Ancestry.com DNA things. And I thought, oh, this is cool. I'm going to show you my profile. 
because, because there was a crisis. I don't know if you could see it there. Um, there I, I had an existential crisis at some point when I got this profile. Now, you notice the first thing it says there is that I'm England, Wales, moderate, Northwestern Europe, 39%, right? The whole England thing, right? I didn't have an existential crisis over the fact that I might be related to Lord Crowley or something, right? But that's a Downton Abbey dig for those of you who didn't get that. Ireland and Scotland, 33%. That was new to me. Germanic Europe, 10%. Eastern Europe and Russia, 8%. Sweden, 5%. France, 3%. Norway, 2%. And no surprises there. Except when I first got this profile. When they give you your profile, they, they basically give you this warning that as we gather more information, the, 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 what you have can actually change. It's fluid. And so when I first got my profile, instead of at the end saying 2% Norway, it said 2% Ashkenazi Jew. That shocked me. I'm a Jew. I had no idea. It started, it started to affect everything I thought about. Right? Maybe I should start giving money to Jews for Jesus. Someone's got to take care of my people. <laughs> right? Maybe I'm asking Judy, like, Judy, what do you know about cooking lamb? Easter's coming up, right? I thought maybe I should start listening to Ben Shapiro podcast. I tried to listen one time, and he talks so fast, I couldn't finish it. And then I thought, people accuse me of talking fast. My people. Suddenly, I was one of the chosen people. I was so excited, and then I got another email that said, "Want, want, sorry. You're not a Jew anymore. You're Norwegian. I don't know how those, they mix those two things up, but suddenly I thought, does it even matter? I'm going to be honest with that 2% Jew. I was like, hey, don't mess with the Jews, my people. And now what? You see, was Abraham my father or was he not my father? Where, where, what was my ancestry after all? And was it important? In the book of Galatians, after all of the arguments that are theological, apparently the agitator said, well, here's the thing. Maybe Paul is right about all those things, but the real question is whether or not Abraham is your father. Right? Abraham is the, the, the father of the Jews. He's the father of the faith. If, is Abraham your father or not? Because if Abraham's not your father, then you've got problems. And if he is your father, guess what? You need to get circumcised, they would say. And that's what Paul is addressing here. People who would come and say, unless you have Abraham as your father, unless you are circumcised as a Jew, even being a Christian doesn't matter. You need to obey these works of the law. And so what Paul basically comes behind them and says is this. He says that, hey, let me, let me, I hate to break this to you, but everybody ultimately, spiritually, is a child of Abraham. Everybody, every human being, Paul would say, ultimately, spiritually speaking, is a child of Abraham. The thing that differentiates those who have a relationship with God and those who don't have a relationship with God is not who your father is, but who your mother is. Surprising? Right? In other words, Paul says everyone's lineage in some sense derives from Abraham. What's really important is not your father. What's important is your mother. And so he talks about that day. We're going to look at three things. Basically, the three things we're going to look at today. We're going to look at a historical situation. Paul's going to tell them. And then he's going to give them a, an allegorical interpretation. And then finally, he's going to give them a practical application. Okay. So what's the historical situation here? 
So if you remember anything about the, the Old Testament, in, uh, basically when you, at the very beginning of the Bible, you have Adam and Eve, they're placed in the garden, and things are shalom, the way they are supposed to be. Adam and Eve violate shalom by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God says in the day if you eat, that you eat of it, you'll die. And they didn't die immediately, however, because God came in and said, I will fix this, basically. He said that the, the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, and he will strike his heel. And they, in other words, God said, I will fix it. And so they named their first kid, here he is, Cain. That didn't work out very well. So years pass, and finally you get to Genesis chapter 12, and God calls this Gentile out of the land of Ur named Abraham. Remember Genesis chapter 12, God calls him, and basically he says to him, Abraham, come, I will make your descendants more numerous than the stars of the sky, and I will give you a land that I will show you, and whoever blesses you will be blessed, and whoever curses you will be cursed. And in Genesis 12 it says, and Abraham went. He, he believed God, at least we, we know he believed because he went, and then by the time you get to Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham again, and he basically gives him this covenant. He basically promises him that he will give him the, the descendants that are more numerous than the stars of the sky, and give him the uh, land of the, the promised land, ultimately. And so everything is cool. Remember, and it says, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Apostle Paul uses that in Romans, he uses it in Galatians, as a model for the way we come to faith. Not by works, but by faith in Christ alone, not by works of the law. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, you would think everything was cool then, but by Genesis chapter 16, Sarah, Abraham's wife, starts getting a little antsy. Right? She's, she's 100 or so, and she's telling Abraham, Abraham, God promised you're going to have an heir, and I just don't see it happening. I'm not only barren, but now I'm, I'm past the age when, it, when even a, a normal woman would, would have, be able to have children. She said, so here's what I think you need to do. You need to take my handmaiden, Sarah, and go conceive a child with her, and he will be your heir. And Abraham does that, and they conceive this child, Ishmael, by the slave woman, Hagar. By chapter 17, God gives Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and the covenant of circumcision is for not only Abraham, but for all of those in his household. That's an important point, because we know in the covenant of circumcision, Abraham, I mean, Ishmael, and ultimately Isaac would both be circumcised. And so you have, Isaac is born in Genesis chapter 21, and so what is the historical situation? Basically, you have these two sons, and what they have in common is the same father, Abraham, and they've both been circumcised. They've both been marked with God's covenant. So we know just from that being marked with God's covenant doesn't necessarily mean you will keep God's covenant. One of the children ultimately kept covenant with God. The other, one of the children ultimately did not. Ishmael did not. And so the historical situation, two boys, what they have in common, same father. They were both marked by the covenant. What is different about them? Notice what Paul says in um, verse, well, I'll read the whole thing. He says, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, one by the free woman. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now, just note this in verse 21. Paul expects that people will understand this at least the people he's writing. And he, in verse 21 where he says, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? 
Now, by the law there, he means there are two ways to take the law in the Old Testament. One is just like the Ten Commandments, but the other is the whole Pentateuch was referred to as the law, all the stories. And he's basically saying, don't you know the stories about these two sons, one born to the slave woman, one born to the free woman, and what differentiates them? How are they, they different? And he said, the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to promise. What does he mean by that? Well, he says the son of the slave woman, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. In other words, he was born according to, to just natural processes. It, Abraham and Sarah thought, God's not working on our timing, so we're just going to make something happen. And when they did that, they screwed everything up. Does that sound familiar? Right, so it's a story of my life. I don't know about yours. God, what are you doing? I'll just go ahead and make something happen. Not by faith, but what, what I can figure out, and I'm not always the smartest guy, and I end up making things more muddy. That's what Abraham and Sarah did. Ishmael was born not by faith. They didn't say, God, give us this child of a slave woman by faith. They said, you know what? We can just use natural practices and go in. Abraham, you go in and sleep with her, and we'll have an heir. We don't even need faith for any of that. And he said, that is who Ishmael is. He said, one child was born like that. The other child was born according to promise. The only way Isaac could be born is that if God intervened supernaturally in accordance with the promise that he made. There, there was no amount of works. There was no amount of, uh, they didn't have in vitro fertilization. They didn't have anything. When you're 100 years old and barren and God says, I'm going to give you a child, your only hope and comfort is that God himself will give you a child. No works of the law, no, no actions, no taking charge or control, nothing. That's how Isaac was born. And so the two sons, Paul says, basically they come to represent two worldviews or two ways of life. And so what do they represent? Basically, Ishmael represents um, those who would rely on works of the law in order to be saved. Isaac comes to represent those who would rely on faith to be saved. Ishmael uh, represents law, while Isaac represents grace. One of the children was born by proxy, and the other children, child was born according to promise. And what Paul is getting at is that spiritually speaking, we all can trace our spiritual lineage back to one of those two. Which one of those are you? Which child are you? Are you the child who relies on works of the law to be saved from your sins? Or are you the child who relies on promise or the product of God's promise? Are you the one who, who hopes and prays that you're just good enough at the end of the day, that, that when, when you go to heaven and someone says, God says, why should I be there? You say, I was a good person, or at least I hope I was. Ishmael. Or when you get to heaven and God says, why should I let you in? You say, you shouldn't, but Jesus, let him know. You see, Jesus is there interceding for us all the time according to God's promise. Do you rely on your own works or do you rely on the works of Jesus? Those are the two. And Paul elaborates, and that's where he moves on to the allegorical interpretation. Notice what he says in verse 24. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So what's the bottom line? We have two women who, with two sons who represent two covenants that correspond to two cities. 
clear? So the two women have two sons that represent two covenants, and those covenants are the old covenant and the new covenant. What is the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant? And if you're a note taker, you're going to want to write this down. In general, the old covenant is where God says to you, you shall, you shall, you shall. Or you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. In other words, God is speaking in both covenants. He's the one that initiates both covenants. And in the old covenant, the covenant of law, God says, you shall do this. The new covenant is completely opposite. In the old covenant, God says, you shall, you shall, you shall. In the new covenant, God says, I will, I will, I will. In other words, the covenant of law, God says, if you want to live that way, you better do all these things. If you want the covenant of grace, I do everything. And so he says, I will. I will save you to the other end. I will take your heart of stone and change it into flesh. I will save you. I will never fail you or forsake you. In the new covenant, God does all the work, 100% of it. And you can almost always tell when someone is relying on the old covenant rather than the new covenant, whether they're a Christian or not. It's because they, they despair and give up. It's been amazing to, to me in the past few weeks, those of you who sort of follow the news, there have been, there've been a number of, of pretty famous Christians that have come out and said, yeah, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. I just don't, you know, when I look at all this stuff, I just don't have what it takes. And I would say to them, right, you don't. And yet, if, if you're constantly saying to yourself, if this is what it takes, why would I even bother? That's actually the right thing. And so the, why do people tend to leave the faith in my experience? It's not because they're so overwhelmed with the love and grace of Jesus. It's because they're overwhelmed with what they think God's expectations of them are. And they know they can't make it. And they know they can't fail. And so they just throw, it, throw everything away. If that's who you are, I beg you, give up that stuff. Give up the, the trying to re- please God with your works of the law. Give up trying to make him happy. Give up trying to make other people around you happy. Trust the grace of Jesus. Do you really believe that God loved you so much that he sent his only son to die for you? That Jesus lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died and rose again from the dead and he ascended to heaven and now he stands at the right hand of God and nothing can accuse you. Nothing. I mean, you almost get this picture in the Bible that every now and then Satan comes to the throne of God and says, hey, let's talk about Tommy Allen. And Jesus stands up and says, not today. He is taken care of, as are everyone else who has put their faith and trust in me. That is how you avoid despair. That's not only how you avoid despair, but that's actually how you experience joy and freedom. What Paul wants the Galatian Christians to experience is freedom from works of the law in order to think they're pleasing God. And he says, you have to have the right mother. Those who have basically um, Hagar for their mother rely on works of the law and they will be miserable. And let me mention these cities. He says, this is a great dig here. He says, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She responds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children, but Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Now, why is that a dig? If you remember the, the, uh, agitators that were coming in and telling people you need to be circumcised and what have you. Do you remember where they came from? They came from Jerusalem. They came from, at least they said they were from the party of James. And Paul says all those people who come from Jerusalem thinking that they're all that, thinking that they're children of Abraham because that's going to save them. 
slaves. Why are they slaves? They're slaves because they rely on works of the law in order to be saved. And he says, but we have a different mother, and a different mother who, who corresponds to a different city. We're, we're not from the Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem that, that basically produces slaves. We're from the heavenly Jerusalem. Remember what's the heavenly Jerusalem is the heavenly Jerusalem is where the lamb lives. The heavenly Jerusalem is where there there is no sun because the, the the Lord and the lamb light it all the time. That people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are there. That the promise made to Abraham that your descendants will be more numerous than the stars of the sky, it's actually born out in the new Jerusalem. Paul says that's where we are from. Where is your citizenship? Is it the old earthly Jerusalem where everyone is a slave or is it the new Jerusalem where everyone is free? That's what he would ask you. And finally, what is his practical application here? Verse 28 through 31, he says, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of slave, but of free women. It's interesting. Paul takes a pretty interesting turn here in his application of this text. Because he actually turns around and he he says that what is the practical application of being a, a child of promise? And the practical application is this. You will be persecuted. That, that in other words, you expect him to say, you're going to be a child of Sarah. Everything's going to be awesome from now on. And he says, no, as a child of Sarah, there will always be persecution from children of Hagar, children of the, the flesh. Did you see what he said? That He says, your children are promised. But just as at that time, he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. He's referring to Genesis 21 when Isaac was being weaned. There was a weaning ceremony that they used to have. They think it was probably about three years old, and Ishmael would have been about 17, and he mocked Isaac somehow. We don't know to the extent to which he mocked him, but apparently it made Sarah upset, and Sarah told Abraham, you got to get rid of them. you got to cast them out. And Abraham prayed about it, and God said, yeah, cast out the slave woman and her son. So on one hand, the application is you're going to be persecuted, but what's interesting to me is the persecution here, and in my experience, almost always comes from inside the church, not outside. In other words, Isaac was persecuted by his, half, his religious half-brother, not by the pagans who are outside of, of Israel. And in many, the, much the same way, the, the Children of, the, the, of Hagar and children of Sarah, they, they typically tend to be in the same building, and persecution almost always comes from inside the church, not outside the church. I mean, I've told you before, I planted a church in, in Capitol Hill, uh, Judy and I did 20 or so years ago in the middle of the gay community, and, and the whole time we were there, we never experienced one bit of trouble from anyone in the community that, that a lot of people were worried about. Not once. In fact, in fact, we were welcomed. We were treated like gold. Inside, that's a little bit different. Inside the church, lots of persecution. Inside the church, lots of trouble. Inside the church, lots of, of conflict. Many of you have been here through that. Why is that? It's, I think it's because of this. It's, it's because in, in every church in every place you basically have people who are driven by works of the law and are motivated by works of the law or who are motivated by grace 
And here's the, pro- the problem with being motivated by the law. Those who are driven by the law tend to do what the law does. People who are driven by the law tend to do what the law does. And what does the law do? The law accuses, the law condemns, and the law makes demands. How does Paul say you deal with someone who accuses and, and makes demands and condemns? What he says, in some ways, is pretty shocking. He says, cast them out. Now, is he talking about the fact that all of us should be looking around for people who don't really get grace? Right? As soon as you see that person, kick them out. I don't think that's what he's getting at. I, think he, I actually think he's talking about the agitators. Right? Because remember in the last passage, Paul says, I am like a mother to you. I, I, I am in labor a second time for you. And now he gets to the end and he says, you know, you got a mother who's born freedom to you or the mother of the slave children. I think he's talking about the false teachers. Kick them out of your church. Now, is Paul above telling someone to leave church because they're divisive? Absolutely not. You see, we tend to think if someone is, is driven by grace, they are always nice. And that's just not true. Paul, was anyone more, more driven by grace than the Apostle Paul, and yet he was constantly and consistently in trouble. And he was constantly and consistently doing hard things. Remember in Titus 3.10, he says, warn a contentious man twice and then have nothing to do with him. So Paul is concerned about conflict and, and what have you in the church, and he's, he's actually concerned that we deal with it. Now here's my practical application. I'll, I'll say this by way of closing. is before you start looking around and saying, hmm, that person right there, I don't think they get it. That person right there, they, they don't understand grace. That person is driven by the law. Look at yourself first. You know, I read, a, I read an article, it was probably it was 2013, if I remember correctly, from USA Today, and it, basically the title of the article was called The Pests We Tolerate. And, and it was an article about just that. And, and basically they asked this question, they did a poll, and they said, would you pay someone to get rid of the following pests? And then they give you the percentages. And so they said, would you pay someone to get rid of spiders and ants in your house? 25% of the people said, yes, we would pay for someone to get spiders and ants out of our house, right? Apparently, they don't live in my house, because in my house, what you do is you just yell, dad, right? <laughs> but either way, 25% of the people, maybe that's 75%, they're like, oh, my dad just kills that stuff. Um, what was the rest of them? So more disturbing, 56% of the people said they would pay someone to help them get rid of bed bugs and rats. I'm sorry, you would need to pay for that. If you're in the 40-whatever percent, that's like a little pastoral advice right there. Don't live with bed bugs, don't live with rats. 90% of people said they would pay to get rid of termites. And what was interesting to me about the whole article is basically at the end of the day, every single person was willing to live with some kind of pest. What's the point there? Well, the point is, is you could come over to my house and say, you know what? The rats at Tommy's house disgust me, but I'm fine with the cockroaches in mine. Or, or the bed bugs at the Weems place, that's all right, but, 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 but the, the rats at your house are horrible. In other words, all of us have something. I think the way Jesus would put it, before you go approaching people to sort of cast them out or to judge them, take the log from your own eye. What is, what is the pest that you deal with? Are you a son of the slave woman or a son of the free woman. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, 
I pray this morning that as we, um, we continue on with the service, we continue on with singing, we continue on um, with the Lord's Supper, that we would, we would be transformed even now, even in, in the partaking and the singing and the praying, uh, that, that you would transform us. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen and amen.